This morning's sermon is brought to you by way of thieves' cough drops on my end. <laughs> and uh, just uh, one of those few days, stuff's going around, but uh, thankful for those cough drops. If you've ever had them before, they're a little potent, but if you eat them enough, you, you begin to get a taste for them. They're good. I like them. Colossians chapter 2, verses 18 through 15. We're going to get into the meat here of what is happening in the church at Colossae and what is uh, what Paul's talking about and how to confront this false teaching of what's going on. So if you found your way to Colossians chapter 2, it's page 984, page 984 uh, in the Bibles there in the row for you. And uh, we'll pray and we'll look at these few verses. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Again, for the truth that we've sung of who you are and what you've done, Lord, that you hold us fast, Lord, that we can find rest in you. Lord, I pray as we have the cares of our week behind us and the cares of another week to come, Lord, that we realize all of those things, Lord, that may be weighing on us, help us to view them in light of eternity in light of who you are, in light of our union with Christ and our identity in him, Lord, of what you're doing through those things to make us more like Jesus and giving us an opportunity to point others to Christ. Lord, help us to understand your word, Lord, to apply it to our lives, Lord, to learn from it. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Colossians 2, verses 8 through 15. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human and tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him, through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This idea of being taken captive, being taken captive by something, something grabs your attention and, and it holds it. It's something that you have to get and you can't let up. It's your one desire, it's your one focus. There are many things that can captivate our attention as adults, but we're pretty good at hiding it, of, of playing it real cool. Kids, on the other hand, they just let it all hang out. They know exactly what they want, and they let you know it. When I was probably in third, fourth, fifth grade, uh, there was a trend that took the United States by storm, and it's what every kid wanted, and you started to collect these things, and they were going to be worth millions. Do I know what I'm talking about? Beanie babies. Beanie babies, right? So that was mid, 
mid-1990s. And I remember getting my first Beanie Baby for my birthday when I was like in third or fourth grade. And I was like, what? And then from there, I would save my $6 because that's how much they were at this little boutique shop in our small town where I grew up. $6. I'd say I've saved six bucks and I'm mom, we got to go. We got to go. I got to go see what's there. And I would save my money or I'd be with my grandma and I'd sweet talk my grandma into buying me a couple. You know, it's like, as a kid, you, you, you know what you're doing, you know. Um, and I remember that just being on the focus of my mind. I was just captivated with getting this one or that one. It's the, it's the thing that I was just enthralled with. And then McDonald's put them in Happy Meals. Oh, man, that was, that was the end of it all. Anyways, I was so captivated with this, and I collected these, and I had quite the collection. And then I grew up, and I got into other things, and they went from my bed to a shelf to my desk to into a basket into an under-a-bed storage box. And then I went to college. And then got married and moved and moved again. And all of a sudden, about a year, a year and a half ago, my parents come for a visit and they show up with a tub. Do you know what's in that tub? Beanie Babies. And I'm like, are you kidding me? And you know what my kids did? These are awesome! <laughs> now, <laughs> needless to say, none of them were worth any money at all. And even if they were, you have to find somebody who will pay you that money. And so we gave them to the kids or took them to Goodwill or different things and dispersed of them. I think there's still a bag of some that I'm just holding on to that I think might be worth something, right? And my wife is up here rolling her eyes. And Marsha Parsons is shaking her head saying, no, just get rid of them. <laughs> something that was captivated me and it held me. And it's just what I focused on so much. And it was going to be worth something. But 20 years later, empty. There might be a little value, but nothing what I had in mind. I was so captivated with something that ended up being fruitless in a sense, of didn't really matter and really came to nothing. In these verses here, we are introduced to the false teaching that is present in the church in Colossae of what they're dealing with. And it's really interesting how Paul phrases this. He tells them not to become captive to this teaching, to be enthralled or overtaken or to buy in hook, line, and sinker to what they're hearing, but rather they are to be captivated by Christ. To not be so amazed and, in a sense, tricked and deceived by the false teaching, but rather have their hearts set on Jesus. Our big idea this morning is this is that Christ should captivate us and not the passing lies of the world. It's a simple statement, but it's something we need to be reminded of again and again, <clears throat> that Christ should captivate us and not the passing lies of the world. Why? Well, the lies of the world are empty, and they come from a heart of deceit. They come from the ultimate deceiver. They come from Satan, who himself is a deceiver, who is a liar, they are sourced from Satan and from human wisdom. It's not from God. Christ, however, is the one we should be captivated with. Through his death, burial, and resurrection, in our union with him, we have forgiveness of sin and the canceling of our debt. 
Jesus has brought us near and set us apart with a circumcision made without human hands. And in doing so, he has triumphed over every other ruler and spiritual authority and every other source of wisdom because he is the true wisdom. So as we look here at these few verses and as we think of this big idea, the question is why? Why should Christ captivate us and not the passing lies of the world? For two reasons. First, because the lies of the world are empty. They're empty. So look at verse 8. Paul says, see to it that no one takes you captive. Right away he says, see to it. Be on guard. In a sense, it's your responsibility. You have to be looking out. See to it. See to it that, that this happens, that you do this. Okay? Sometimes false teaching has crept into the church because pastors and church members have been lazy in their thinking. They've just been passive and receiving everything that they hear rather than taking what they hear and running it through the measure of God's word and of what God says and of what they know to be true of his word. So see to it that no one takes you captive. Everything that I say up here, you should be running through your mind, okay, is that what's in the text? Is this what the Bible says? Everything that Pastor James says or a Sunday school teacher says, we need to measure what you hear with what the Word of God says. And that goes for not only what you hear in this church, but everywhere as you read books and as you, you listen to things on the radio or podcasts or YouTube videos. Measure what you hear. See to it that no one takes you captive. Because usually false teachers are pretty slick. Oh, they are a sugar-coated pill of poison is what they are. They sound good. They look good. They're smooth. They smile real nice. They have good hair. They usually wear a tie. You know, I have one guy in mind if you know who I'm talking about here, right? Big church, church. And it sounds good, but when you look at it and compare it to God's Word, no, it, it's, it's lies. It's, it's not what the Word of God says. So we need to see to it. We need to be on guard that no one takes you captive. That idea of captive, I've already mentioned, is, is grabbing your attention, your affections, your desires, all that you are. And certain people just have that ability to sway you. They are, they are born salesmen, right? My dad always used the phrase that that person could sell refrigerators to Eskimos. That's how good of a salesman they are. Slick words, but let no one take you captive. And how, what's the teaching that they would take you captive with? Paul says, first off, by philosophy. So this idea of philosophy is the love of wisdom. The love of wisdom. Now, this does not necessarily mean the overarching idea of philosophy in the world today. We say philosophy, right? The study of wisdom or how to think or how you look at the world. That's not necessarily the emphasis of Paul here. This idea of philosophy in the first century is the basically love of talking about things that don't matter, <laughs> of just spending so many words to not get anywhere. This ideal of searching for wisdom that you can never find, like it's something that's hidden. Taking captive by philosophy is the idea of the search for wisdom that really has no end. This idea of, of searching for something that is hidden. And along with philosophy comes empty deceit. And those two tie together. 
this deceit, this deception, these lies. These false teachers, this is really what they're peddling, lies, deceit. Now, it takes different forms, but ultimately, you, you deceive others to gain something yourself, whether it's power, prestige, monetary gain, the ability to get somebody to do what you want. But this deceit is empty. It's hollow. It's no good. This searching for wisdom that you will not find in this <coughs> empty deceit, empty lies. This is what they're seeking to take the Colossians captive with. And this is according to human tradition. Human tradition. And we'll see in the next few weeks what some of these human traditions are. Some of them are in regards to food and drink. You can't eat that. You can't drink that because of what the law of Moses says. You can't eat this or drink this because of God's word. Not understanding what Christ has done. You can't do this It's because of the law of Moses. All these instances of human tradition that's been forced upon God's word, that, that they are now exploiting as the measure of godliness. It's human tradition. It's human standards and not God's standards. And then he says also, according to the elemental spirits of the world. The elemental spirits of the world. This is in regards to spiritual powers and the, in a sense, the elements of the physical world. You can think of like a natural mysticism, like earth, fire, wind, water, things like that. It's a false, uh, false belief in these, these spirits, these powers that are there. According to the elemental spirits of the world, your translation might say elementary principles. It's these basic things that are found in the world that they are making, in a sense, God things that aren't, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and ultimately, not according to Christ. So why should Christ captivate us and not the passing lies of the world? Because the lies of the world are empty. They're hollow. They're full of deceit. You can't trust them. They're based on human tradition and not God. All of these are contrary to Christ. And this is the main issue facing the Colossians. The false teaching that they are confronted with puts human experience, tradition, and physical mysticism above Jesus and all that he's accomplished. They're elevating these things that aren't necessarily bad to a place that they shouldn't be. They're downplaying Jesus and what he's done, and they're exalting these things that really have no source of truth. This false teaching is empty. It's man-centered, and therefore it will not last. We'll see, as I mentioned, this fleshed out more in the end of chapter 2 here. But this is the warning. See to it, no one takes you captive, because these things are empty. They're full of deceit. So in the world, what are those things that are empty today? We're 2,000 years on, but yet there is still plenty of thoughts out in the world that are seeking to deceive us, seeking to, to grab our attention and say, no, this is okay. This is okay. This is, this is how it should be, right? There's issues of gender and sexuality, of sinful identification, of, well, I'm not this, though my biology says this, I'm this. 
I'm not this, I'm this. Or, you know what? I don't think this child that's growing in my womb is a human life, and it's just inconvenient for me, and so I want to, to have this removed from me. Abortion. Matters of marriage, sexuality, abortion. Those are lies of the world that are empty and deceitful. And really, the lie behind all those things is this, is that there is no God and that you are God and that you can decide whatever you want to do. That there's no higher power that you are accountable to. You can call it secular humanism. That's a fancy term. The idea that, in a sense, we are God and we can decide because we've advanced. Look at all the science that we have. You want to talk about an empty philosophy. <laughs> Some of the science that's out there is ridiculous. It's not grounded in fact or truth or experimentation and proving things over and over again. It's all conjecture. It's human tradition. It's empty deceit. And so we need to be careful that we, what we hear, what we intake, what we think, even down to our basic desires and affections and the things that we want or we think we need, do we really need those things? Do we really need to act in that way or, or want that or desire that? Just as my obsession with beanie babies ended up being empty, sometimes our obsession with things in the world around us, those things that we think are important or the world says are important, they're ultimately empty. The promises, the teachings of the world, the lies of the world are empty. But we also should be captivated with Christ because of what Christ has done. Secondly, Christ has triumphed over all. Paul immediately jumps into this again here. It's like he just can't get over Jesus, and that's a good thing. He's confronting this false teaching, and immediately he says, don't give in to this. Because none of this is according to Jesus. Because this is who Jesus is and what he's done. Paul is not trying to out-logic them. That's not what he's doing here. What Paul is doing is he's pointing them back to Jesus and saying, you know what, those empty lies of the world, okay, they might sound good, but guess what? They're empty. They're not going to endure. But do you know what Jesus has done? Look at what Jesus has done. He's trying to catch their hearts, to captivate their minds and their affections with Jesus and what he's done. And he says this in verse 9, For in him, this points back to Jesus, in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Jesus is 100% God. The Colossians we see are seeking after uh, angels or spirits or some sort of higher learning. And Paul says, Jesus is God. You can't get any higher than that. He's 100% God. In him, the whole fullness, this idea of fullness is complete, uh, absolute. It's full. The fullness of deity dwells in Jesus. He is 100% God. And you know what? You have been filled in him. If you have trusted in Jesus, you have been filled in him. You are united with him. In a sense, you partake in that. Not that we become God, but rather we have access to God through him. And Jesus is the head of all rule and all authority. So no matter what authority somebody comes in with to the church Colossae, 
Colossians, know that Jesus is above all that. Jesus is over all authority. So you think of human government, you think of parents, you think of, uh, of husbands, you think of all these positions of authority in the world today. Jesus is over all of them. You might say, well, who's going to keep them accountable? Will they ever have to give an account? Yes, they will. They will have to give an account to the one who is head over all authority. That is Jesus. Jesus is fully God. We are in him, and he has authority over all things. And then in verse 11, he kind of takes a right or a left turn here. <laughs> he brings up this idea of circumcision. In him also, you are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. And here, he's using this illustration, circumcision, the removal of the foreskin, was a sign of the covenant to Abraham in Genesis. God said to Abraham, be circumcised, you and all your male descendants, as a sign of my covenant, my promise to you, and of all the blessings that I'm going to give you. It was a physical sign of this promise. But now, the circumcision has changed from something physical to something spiritual. How does this work? Verse 11, in him also were you circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Remember, this, these are not all Jews that Paul is writing to. So many of them may not have been physically circumcised. But he says, you were circumcised without hands by putting off the body of the flesh, that is sinful flesh, by the circumcision of Christ. A little later on, down in verse 13, we see this. He reminds them that they were dead in their trespasses and in the uncircumcision of their flesh. So this idea is important because Paul uses it in Galatians and a couple different other places. In the Old Testament, circumcision was a physical sign of the promise to Abraham and his descendants that they would receive the promises that God was going to give them. But now in the New Testament we see this circumcision is not physical, but it's spiritual. And it's a circumcision of the heart. They were dead in their trespasses and sins, and they were in the uncircumcision of their hearts. They were far off from God. They were outside the promises. But now, as they are in Jesus, as they have trusted Jesus, they have been given a circumcised heart, which means <coughs> they have received the sign of, of the promises that are to come. He's using this Old Testament practice to describe this New Testament reality that if you have trusted in Jesus Christ, you will partake in the promises that were given to Abraham and to David that have come to fulfillment in Jesus. They are part of the covenant people. They are no longer outside, but they are on the inside of God's promises. And then in verse 12, he jumps to the idea of baptism. Having been buried with him in baptism. Having been buried with him in baptism. So there's some discussion, is this spirit baptism? Well, the spirit necessarily isn't mentioned anywhere else here in this passage. More than likely, this refers to physical baptism, this outward sign of the inward reality. Now, let's remind ourselves. Now, many of you are familiar with this. but Some of you may not be, and that's why this is important. Baptism, as we understand it in the New Testament, 
is an ordinance or a command given to the church that after you have trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you publicly testify of your faith in Christ by being baptized. Now, the word baptism here literally means immersion. Rather than being translated, it's transliterated. What does that mean? The Greek word is baptizo. It's where we get the word baptism. That's a transliteration, meaning we take the word as it was and we just update it to fit our English. But the word baptizo means, in our thinking, immersion. A translation of the word baptism is immersion. So there are many different traditions in Christianity which will sprinkle. The pattern and the word in the New Testament literally is immersion. So as we think of baptism, we are immersed. We are buried with Jesus as we go under the water, as Jesus was laid in the tomb, and then we are raised to newness of life as Jesus was raised from the dead. Baptism is a picture of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection and our identification with him. Paul says here, having been buried with him in baptism, in immersion, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. Paul is reminding his believers, hey, you've identified with Jesus Christ. You are partakers of the promises given to Jesus. You have been identified with Jesus through baptism. You have trusted in the one who has raised him. Look at verse 12. (coughs) Sorry. Through faith, so through this faith that they have in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead, they have been captivated by this empty teaching. And Paul says, why? You had faith in God who literally raised Jesus from the dead. You're searching and seeking for empty things when you follow the false teachers. But now, if you follow God as you've believed in him, you're following the one who can raise the dead to life. Verse 13, And you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Paul summarizes here what God did for us through Jesus' death. God made us alive with Christ. All of our trespasses and sins have been forgiven. How? Well, they've been paid in full because the record of debt that stood against us was nailed to the cross. God's desire for justice was fully satisfied in the death of Jesus on the cross. Our sin payment was paid for. It's not that God just forgot our sins. No, he demanded a payment, and that payment was paid in full. And it was canceled because of Jesus' death on the cross. I've mentioned this before, but in our file, uh, file cabinet where we keep different documents that we need, there's a folder in there that says student loans. And I have like the five letters from the lending companies uh, that said, you have paid your student loans in full. Uh, your loan or your stuff with us has been canceled. Like, and I highlighted all that, and I'm just keeping those. Even though that was like 10, 11 years ago, it's like, 
No, I remember getting those letters in the mail thinking, yes, the debt is gone. Our agreement with them, in a sense, has been canceled. We have no working relationship with those companies. In a sense, with our sin and our demand for justice because of our sin, it's been canceled. It's been done away with because of Jesus' death on the cross. So not only has Jesus overcome our sin and the debt that comes with it, but verse 15, he's also overcome all other rulers, both earthly and heavenly. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. Now, this phrase is often used to refer to spiritual powers. Ephesians 6, right? We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against all these different things, these spiritual powers. This is the same idea here. He disarmed the spiritual powers at war, meaning through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, we have victory over sin and over death, but also over Satan and all of his followers. Jesus has victory over all of his enemies. He disarmed them, and not only that, but he put them to open shame, meaning he made it clear that he has all authority over them. And he has triumph over them. And we triumph over them because we are in Jesus Christ. Paul's summarizing here how God through Christ accomplished redemption and how the Colossians participate in it. They have received the spiritual circumcision or sign of the promise when they trusted in Jesus. And it's only through Jesus' death on the cross that the legal demands of the law can be met and the sin paid for. And not only that, our sin was dealt with, but the enemies of God were triumphed over through the cross, whether human powers or supernatural powers. Christ is supreme and triumphs over all. Paul is seeking to lay out what Christ has done and to captivate the hearts of the Colossians. So as we think of Christ triumphing over all, it reminds us when we are caught up in the cares of this world or the empty passing things, we need to be readjusted. What do we need to focus on? Look to Christ. Remember what he's done. Think of the different aspects of the gospel that he has accomplished for you and I. The victory that was secured on our behalf because of him. He is good. He is kind. He is loving. He is merciful. He is just. He is all-powerful. He is worthy of all worship. Christ is altogether lovely and beautiful. In him is wisdom. In him the whole fullness of God dwells. This is who Jesus is. Let us not become captivated with the passing lies of the world, but let us look to the one who is the source of salvation, who's accomplished it for us. When we feel we may become swayed by the lies, we need to choose something that does not move, that does not change. That is Christ. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So that means whether you're teaching a four-year-old, whether you're having a conversation with your teenagers, parents, because teenagers never get swept up in anything that anybody else is saying, right? Remember that? 
Remember being a teenager? But so-and-so did this. Point them to Jesus. He doesn't change. As a parent interacting with kids, I have to remind myself, my wife and I have to remind ourselves to point them to Jesus, that we need to find our rest in Jesus. As we become empty nesters, as many of you are, you may be asking, okay, now what? What does life look like for me? What is, what is it? How does it function? Remember to look to Christ, the one who never changes. And as the years go on, those of you who have moved further on in experience and in life, as you come near the end, to continue to look to Christ, the one who doesn't change. He has triumphed over all, and he is to be the one that we are to keep our eyes on. Things come and go, fads appear, and then they disappear. Promises are made, but many of them are empty by the world. But Christ, He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. May we keep our eyes fixed on Him, captivated with Him, so that no matter what comes up by way of Satan or the lies of the world or human tradition, that we can look to Him and say, nope, I'm going to keep my eyes on Him. I'm going to be captivated with Him. I'm going to be satisfied in Him because look what He's done. Look who he is. Look at all that I have in Christ. Father, we thank you again this morning for the truth of your word. Lord, I pray that you would use it to make us more like Jesus. Lord, and as we reflect uh, on your word, Lord, that we would choose to be captivated with him, not on the passing lies of the world. Lord, help us do that, whether we are young or old. Lord, whether we are strong in our faith or new in our faith. Lord, that we would be captivated by Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.